Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. Odyssey into the Unknown, The In-Between Definitive Companion, Volume 1. In a world of black and white, there is a region of gray, a sector beyond the senses, surreal and unseen by man, a realm that stretches into the seam of space and time, an area unconfined by consciousness or bound by blood. This is a place we control, with the flip of a switch and a turn of the dial. For the next 30 minutes, we provide the path and provisions on an odyssey into the unknown, a course paved with terror and illuminated by knowledge. Place one fearful foot in front of the other for a brief stroll through the in-between. Whether you're a cinephile or an old TV fan, particularly one with an affinity for sci-fi and monsters, chances are the above words, now a lasting sentiment, appeal to the corners of your less spoiled imagination and conjures haunting images of astronauts lost in time, smirking doppelgangers, and an invasion of pod people on a planet you thought was Earth. Or perhaps they recall a tenderness that touches the cold depths of our most humanness, courtesy of a cross-dimensional love affair, a forlorn sea captain's earnest monologue, or an aging beauty queen in a pageant in the stars. During its original six-season run from 1957 to 1963, the in-between engrossed and terrorized millions of at-home viewers every Thursday at nine, and has since become a narrative phenomenon in structure and style, a shining piece of small-screen Americana, with a fandom that grows greater and greater through the decades. The quintessential science fiction, fantasy, horror anthology series was the breakthrough of American screenwriter, playwright, and novelist Melvin Sorrells, who served as the show's narrator and supplied 133 of the original 217 scripts. Packed with timeless social commentary in an increasingly technological world, the in-between employed a myriad of talents, from guest stars big and small to producer powerhouses and directing giants, while occasionally utilizing the works of some of the most celebrated names in literature. Delivered with doses of irony by way of shocking switcheroos and cruel twists of fate, ask any number of different people for their favorite episode, and you'll unlikely hear a single one repeated. Yet each installment is unique and memorable in its own way. What follows is a companion to six classic episodes of the groundbreaking series, submitted for your approval and signed off by the Sorrels family. For the Betterment of Bitterman, Season 1, Episode 7. First aired November 14, 1957. Walter J. Bitterman is a department store tycoon with a single area of interest, money, and the procurement of more money 
a miser who despises the poor and finds the meek a menace to economic efficiency. Mr. Bitterman begins every Friday morning with great relish. He heads downtown to his flagship store for an all-hands-on-deck inspection, and with much pleasure, lines up the salesgirls on the floor and fires the one with the worst earnings. On this day, a young mother. Subsequently, an elderly tailor from menswear with tailor's tape and scissors gives the fired woman a somewhat cheap sterling silver thimble from a display case. Bitterman notices the exchange, and with a measured tongue, the tailor assures his boss the thimble will gladly come from his pay. Bitterman is both amused and enraged by the gesture, and before leaving the store, he reminds them all why they're there, his wealth and well-being, veiled with a spirited monologue on consumerism and the tragedy of charity with a side of nationalism. Mr. Bitterman returns to his estate in an affluent excerpt where he retires to an underground vault and commits the weekend to counting his money, his favorite pastime. He fetishizes the process, piling bags of coins and stacks of cash by acquisition and liquidation, which he names off with considerable pride. Buckley and Brown, Gilbertson's, Milling's Dress Shop across from the bus terminal. Suddenly, Mr. Bitterman is shaken violently to the ground by a tremendous shockwave. He emerges to find the world decimated in a nuclear blast, and as the sole survivor, makes his way into the city. In a rubble-filled wasteland, Bitterman comes across the flattened remains of a pawn shop, where he spots a woman's hand, his former employee, sticking out from under some mangled debris, holding the silver thimble. With an arrogant chuckle, Mr. Bitterman picks up the thimble and heads to his store. He returns the notion to a charred display and finds himself in hysterics, joking aloud about the unlikelihood of receiving an insurance return on the store. Suddenly, a large sign labeled Returns, and dangling by a mere cord, falls on Bitterman, killing him. And with Sorrels' closing narration, the camera booms up to the store's second floor balcony, where we see the hand of a male, the tailor, crushed by an entire staircase, holding a pair of scissors. If Sorrels' adaptation for the series' pilot, A Way Out of Here, earned him his stripes in the eyes of not only the network and the viewers, but with literary writers at large, then his tailoring of this iconic episode landed him his first battle star. Like many episodes of The In-Between, pulled from a prior publication, For the Betterment of Bitterman, originally titled For the Benefit of Mr. Bitterman, began its journey as a 3,000-word short story by Guinevere Dorr in the March 1955 issue of Fantastic Fiction magazine. A simple yet calculated story about a miserable old man who transforms into a kinder, compassionate person following an atomic war, of which he's the only survivor, season one producer Dean Cummings considered it competent at best, but more importantly, cheap for acquisition. Sorrels toiled over the source material using every trick up his sleeve, trying to make Dorr's story, what he told the students of Mary Elizabeth College during an agitated 1974 lecture, more in-betweeny. The final result was a litmus test on which all succeeding episodes of the series are judged. One of the most, if not the most well-remembered and culturally referenced episodes, 
for the betterment of Bitterman, has over the decades become one of the in-between's premier faces, despite enduring five remakes across three series reboots in 1983, 1985, and a short-lived animated kids series in 1991. The image of the camera moving across the tailor's hand in blown-out black and white is etched into the archival confines of television's most recognized and revered moments. Playing Bitterman is Neville Barnes, the prominent, wildly dexterous film actor known for his swashbuckling roles of the 30s and 40s, to say nothing of his turbulent union with silver screen legend Helen Archer, whom he lost everything to in a fuming 1950s separation, which included the dueling actor's precious stunt foil from the 1942 adventure Captain Highborn. This episode was Barnes's first appearance on a scripted television show, and with a legacy made on the big screen, he wanted, as he told Sorrels in their first meeting, his living room debut to be with the right story. Consequently, Sorrels and Barnes reviewed a number of other plays before deciding on Bitterman, one of which was a lovely piece by Sorrels about an aging theater critic whose critiques had fallen out of fashion. It had the humanity Barnes was looking for, but ultimately felt the character was too sympathetic, especially for a virile, once king of Hollywood, who, following a not-so-private divorce, had been out of the public eye for several years and was mounting a triumphant comeback. Another of the rejected scripts was The Gallery, from C.W. Jones's short story by the same name, which famously went to Harry Lovitz later in the season. An eerily unforgettable in-between about an alien humanoid trapper taxidermist with a log cabin of stuffed humans posed in daily routine, whom he talks to to fend off eternal loneliness. A macabre and, frankly, oddball selection for the charitable Captain Highborn, known by audiences for courting maidens with a swinging grab from a chandelier, or dancing precariously on a fully furnished dinner table of mead and delicate candle holders, resulting, more often than not, in a castle of scorched tapestries, the gallery would prove better suited for the twisted face of the man down the street, Harry Lovitz who had meticulously built a successful career portraying jewel thieves and child murderers. The pair also looked at an undeveloped Sorrel's treatment, which followed a fading, uppity movie star who demands the world in the face of a studio's unmistakable charity, of which Sorrel's eventually made into the 1964 televised movie Monty Weeks is on the Lot. A haunting conversation on dementia and the studio system, Sorrels reiterated in a 1970 interview for KBV that, in spite of what columnists have been saying for years, the character of Monty Weeks is not an illustration of Neville Barnes. But Barnes did provide the writer-producer with strict guidelines for the character, who Sorrels nicknamed Nev during the writing process. In the end, Barnes took the role of Walter J. Bitterman, and it would turn out to be, by his admission, the best decision of his career. When Walter J. Bitterman was born, Barnes acknowledged in Sideshow Biz Fair, Captain Highborn, Friar Franco, all of them, they died. And now fans won't stop sending me scissors. The Thing About Abbotsboro, Season 2, Episode 16, first aired December 18, 1958. It's a snowy Christmas Eve in an idyllic mid-Victorian town named Abbotsboro, and a young woman, a schoolteacher, on the heels of a big gust of wind, drops her books and an apple outside the schoolhouse when she's hit with a sense of unease 
While making her holiday rounds, she soon realizes that she has no recollection of a past or anything outside the town. Inside a house of considerable cheer, she sets the table for a large Christmas feast with the help of another woman, joyful several years her senior, and questions the extravagantly extensive spread, unable to recall any of the expected guests or even cooking a single dish. The older woman laughs her off, then realizes she too can't place herself, and with the wind howling outside is also overcome by the same peculiar feeling. The two women quickly become conscious of the fact that they've never met before, or even know one another's name. The school teacher flees in a panic and back outside in the street, encounters a student she's never seen before, let alone tutored, as the child's mother broaches. Frightened and unable to find her home, the young woman returns to the front of the schoolhouse, where she bears another rogue gust of wind that knocks her to the ground, this time burying her with snow as she lets out a blood-curdling scream. It's revealed that the town is nothing more than a miniature Christmas village in a present-day toy store window, with porcelain figurines posed throughout, and that the freak gusts of wind and snow are let in with customers casually entering and exiting the store, which is incidentally named Abbott's Toy Store. In the window in front of the schoolhouse, we see a toppled over figurine that looks like the school teacher. The hand of a little girl stands it upright, and we find the figurine balancing a tower of books with an apple on top. The only in-between based on a radio play, more specifically a radio play advert, the thing about Abbotsboro is without a doubt one of the series' finest. From its playfully casual title and Christmas theme to its big curtain pull, Abbotsboro is the creation of gothic writer Joyce Thursby from her radio play Porcelain Prison. Following the success of its original broadcast on the suspense program Dead Air at the Alice Theater, Thursby's concept was later used on the show in a scripted ad for Brewster's Candy Chain, which Sorrels heard during the broadcast of a different episode. In 30 seconds, an elderly actress voices for a little girl, a china statuette that's come to life in order to get a piece of candy. Maintaining a lifelong sweet tooth, Sorrels loved the idea. He acquired the story, along with a new sponsor, Brewster's Candy, and in a single morning following one of Sorrels's more laborious pre-writing routines of measuring the volume of his office using one of his seven Emmy Awards, while frequently forgetting to figure the other six into his total, repurposed it for in-between. Nora Sargent plays the nameless school teacher, with Sorrels himself as the toy store's proprietor, through whom he eloquently delivers the episode's immortal closing narration. And if on a snowy Christmas Eve you find yourself confused in a place called Abbotsboro, know you're neither here nor there, but in between. The thing about Abbotsboro marks the only time Melvin Sorrells appeared in an episode of the acclaimed series in season two. A brilliant writer once bitten by the acting bug, Sorrells fancied himself a bit of a primetime player, as well as a song and dance man, despite his narration segments coming off as stilted for critics of the day primarily in proportion to Oscar Moffat's lurchy, chilling, cobweb-filled cadence on the prevalent Friday night radio drama Anxiety. 
The signature showrunner and season six spokesman for Mothball Slims, Sorrels would go on to play The Tramp in Does Anybody Hear Me, Dr. Snyder in There's a Monster in Providence Prairie, as well as the young gas pump jockey from A Stopover in Someplace Swell, in season four alone. Additionally, Sorrels is known to have recorded entire scripts into his personal tape recorder, voicing all the parts himself, sometimes wearing makeshift costumes strung together from office knickknacks. In a 1980 interview, Ann Sorrels spoke of walking in on her husband with her elephant ear plant sticking up through the collar of his shirt while working out the Martian scene for They Came for Supplies. As with Wish Upon a Flying Saucer, the production of Abbotsboro came off as a network nightmare when the fake snow lining the studio turned out to be toxic. The crew was sent home and the set quarantined for five days while Nora Sargent spent the weekend at a California hot springs and clinic, where she was evaluated and later cleared for a wheelchair polo tournament commencing on the South Lawn. The tale has since made its way into decades of motion picture and television folklore, and out of it came an industry trope. To say something is great Abbotsboro, it's usually cheap and in all likelihood hazardous. Like, that body glitter looks great Abbotsboro, which series director James Jarvis used to describe the shiny, earless aliens during the season four filming of The Out-of-Towners. Following the poisonous snow removal, Abbotsboro's facade was scrubbed steeple to street before bringing in fresh snow, made from a safer silk alternative, a new revolutionary white asbestos promoted under the name True Snow by the Howard Mills Company. The result was an everlasting winter wonderland fit for the in-between. Diet delight. The Farm, Season 3, Episode 4. First aired September 24th, 1959. A farm, for all intents and purposes, belonging to a rural religious society. A homestead with chapel and a row of quaint quarters, each with a private vegetable garden and occupied by a single man and woman. While tending their crops, a haggard Micah and Alicia notice their neighbors in tears, giving their bassinet to another couple who can hardly contain their glee. After the residents are called outside their cabins by three strange tones resounding from speakers in the church belfry where a bell should be, an unnamed reverend, young and well-conditioned, distributes a single seed to each couple, more specifically to each woman, placing it on their tongue at least edited to convey as much, and with lyrical praises promises the people a bountiful harvest. That evening, while the rest of the farm sleeps, Micah watches the contained commotion of a baby's delivery at the couple's cabin with the bassinet, followed by a single curious chime from the belfry. The next morning, a gussied-up reverend delivers a sermon on duty in the face of free will to a congregation of filthy and fatigued. Micah notices Alicia discreetly and longingly admiring the new parents and their baby from across the room. At supper, everyone sits down to a banquet prepared from their gardens. Colorless mash and bizarre cubicle green fruits from long pods like green beans. Micah notices his neighbors at the other end of the table without their baby and whimpering, unacknowledged by the others. The man confronts the woman, who becomes inconsolable and runs off from the table. The next day, with the three tones, the reverend dispenses the seeds, 
pulled from Locke's shed. Later that night, Alicia informs Micah that she's with child, and the following morning, the two are presented with the bassinet from their now dejected neighbors, the woman lifeless, staring fixedly at the ground. After Alicia's delivery, the Reverend arrives at the couple's cabin and explains to them that their baby, now born, no longer belongs to them and is the stock of an anonymous they, the Watchers. The Reverend refers to himself as an overseer, one of many, a sort of ageless shepherd who watches over the flock, and with eerie delight expresses to the couple that it's not their place to question the masters or their ways. The Reverend takes the baby out back and following a column of light that illuminates the property with the sound of a shock warble, returns with empty arms. As the Reverend exits the cabin, Micah bolts by him for the shed and takes an axe to the padlock. A group of overseers wrestles him to the ground and we see that they all look exactly like the Reverend. The door to the shed creeps open as Micah grapples with the overseers and we see it filled with feed bags labeled human, earth, hair, blonde, eyes, blue. One of the series' more conceptually abstract stories, its real-world nods to fascism, the workforce, and their relation to both the man on the hill and the man in the church, while romanticizing the woman's role in all this, make it one of the more significant and unrelentingly ageless episodes. However, in Searles' first draft, the farm was nothing short of a processing plant for human earth babies, which 1960s censors were never going to allow. As a result, in his subsequent drafts, Sorrels traded in the farm's heavy-handed shades of horror for an endearingly offbeat conversation on the human condition and the absence of free will, presupposed from the moment of birth, suggesting beings are nurtured by convention for a place in the machine, as Sorrels referred to it. Typically mistaken for the first televised female tongue, a distinction that actually belongs to Mr. and Miss Quiz Show, the episode featuring surrealist Luciano Salamander and Congresswoman Nancy Brown. The farm did, however, depict the first time a television audience heard the squeak of a bedspring, as the sound prior to 1959 was considered too prudish for American audiences. Additionally, the farm shines a rare light on mass ideological consumption within the middle class, represented by the paired laborers, or stock, as they're dogmatically portrayed the ones feeding the aforementioned machine. I like it as a mirror for the societal mechanism, Sorrels told Gardening Today, perpetuated by a conflict between conformity and quality of life, the cult of custom and the herding of a population. Freedom in broad terms is subjective, manipulated, indoctrinated, invented, perverted, and defined by people with interests and persuasion people who themselves serve a socially predetermined purpose, a place and role in the perpetual machine. And in my experience, they're usually the ones writing the checks, mine at least, and who thankfully are too ignorant to understand an allegory. That's what makes the farm and others, an unsung man, the petri dish people, really work. It's like a collective headstone, an epitaph that reads, our souls belong to the machine the metaphysical and quite physical cog in the wheel, as it were, like in the Virginia Jerry song. 
a fan and later personal friend of charismatic folk singer Virginia Jerry, recognized for his bass baritone and patchwork britches, Sorrels honored the inspirational former Wooden Spoons performer, celebrated for his early stents on the minstrel show circuit, by putting him at the top of the episode, the man on the front porch playing a guitar. A gesture that earned Melvin Sorrels a performance on Virginia Jerry's televised variety show, Virginia Jerry's Celebrity Jamboree in 1968, where he performed his original song, My Baby Trapped an Alien in the Hen House. If you like peanuts, you'll like Skippy. No Strings Attached, Season 3, Episode 36. First aired May 19th, 1960. Charlie is a down-and-out marionette street performer who's given a mystical, grinning puppet from the old country by a mysterious peddler. Despite not having strings, Charlie is amazed to find that the puppet can dance on its own and chalks it up to the gear-filled tinkerings of a puppet master with a minor in clockmaking. Their act catches the eye of a club owner, and together the performer and puppet gain citywide notoriety night after night of sold-out shows. As the performer's fame grows, so does the puppet. Literally. A couple of inches each night. Subsequently, Charlie begins shrinking and his hair thinning. He fears he's losing his mind when he doesn't recall a date with Eileen, his new steady. One night while standing on a stool in front of his bathroom mirror, the performer notices a thin nylon string growing from his shoulder. A terrifying scene with an equally eerie piece scored for harps by episode composer Hans Stockwell. In the days that follow, Charlie finds freckles on his cheeks that won't rub off, and a sawdust residue from his arm brushing against some unfinished drywall in a building lobby. It isn't long after that when the curtain opens on the duo's popular act, Charlie finds himself on stage as the marionette being bounced about to an audience in stitches, courtesy of the puppet, smiling ear to ear, now life-size, flesh tone, and with an adoring new fiancé blowing kisses from a front table. A standout classic in a long series of episodes hanging its hat on the old switcheroo, a celebrated staple of the series, no Strings Attached is a moody, all-out creepy tale designed to do just that. And with the added terror of a silent, somehow malevolent dummy, it delivers across the board. Make that block. Adapted without credit from a Tony Kellerman story about a vaudeville ventriloquist who's convinced his dummy is alive and performing alone during off-weeks, Sorrels without a doubt made it his own, changing the central character's name from Charles to Charlie, an homage to Call Me Charlie, an episode of Arnie Tuttle's thrilling suspense hour. No Strings Attached was the first of three episodes directed by William Whitaker. The other two were Luck of the Devil and I Recall Somerville Fondly in Springtime, as Bill Whitaker, after being mistaken for the 16th century theologian by publicly educated audiences of the time. Paul Van Harper plays Charlie a role originally given to seven different actors with similar facial characteristics, including Wallace McMichael and George Post, from the film Admiral Billingsley, where he and Harper played brothers. Rather than cast the episode's lead before commissioning a puppet caricature of their likeness, season three producer Edgar Hutton 
asked production to take a different approach. In a lengthy and unpleasantly off-the-cuff speech at the 1982 Science Fiction Writers Guild Awards, Hutton shared the difficulties of casting a lead actor that resembled the puppet he, to the reluctance of production manager Chester Gross, had settled on in the early days of production. My kid had this little toy puppet on strings. Scared the hell out of me, Hutton said. We blew it up and made six of them. Must have cast seven or so guys with with astronomical fees that were contractually non... well, non-retractable. None of them were quite right. I had seen Paul and him for the hangman and thought my kid's doll had climbed into the set and up the gallows to pull the old trap door on Linus Mutz. So I signed him the next day, before he went in for a scheduled nose job, then we adjusted the schnozzes on all the puppets. It was definitely one of my better in-betweens. It goes without saying I was shocked when Melvin and the network went a different direction in season 5. I still have the dummies staged all through my study. I set them out on Saturday evenings and together we get all dolled up and eat spaghetti and watch Knock Knock and the Gary Henderson show. And always look forward to seeing Gary's friends, Virgil the Bear and Herman the Chimp. Reunion on the Queen Caroline, Season 5, Episode 19. First aired January 25th, 1962. Martin is a Royal Navy man pulled from open waters by a sterling ocean liner plucked from the seas of a forgotten time. After being rehabilitated, given food and a change of clothes, he's introduced to Angela, the ship's director of passengers, who gives him free reign of the vessel's facilities and makes herself available should he need anything. While walking the decks, taking notice of the ship's bygone fashions and fixtures, oil lamps and ornate fabrics, Martin runs into a passenger he knows, someone from his past, when he was younger, his father's business partner and family friend, Emerson Ellis. Martin's memory is cloudy, but he recalls a lively retirement party for Emerson that was followed by an accident at his cottage on the lake, one from which Martin doesn't remember Emerson recovering. A recollection to which Emerson responds with a hearty and healthy thump on the chest, well, here I am. That evening, Martin bumps into a former professor from his old boarding school on sabbatical with his wife, who's planted herself in the games room with the other ladies. Martin remarks on the professor's youthful spirit and glow, given the last time he saw his formative taskmaster was nearly 20 years earlier, when the professor was in his late 70s and quite ill. Martin's chance encounters continue. An old girlfriend he had heard was in an automobile accident, and a service mate killed in a training exercise. Then, finally, after walking into the ship's ballroom and finding a large party that seems to have manifested in a matter of moments after the Navy man hears music and laughter from outside, Martin finds, drinking and dancing, his entire crew of shipmates that were taken out in the same attack that found him in the water. Everything comes flooding back, and Martin flees the ballroom in a panic. He's joined at the railing by Angela, who explains his rescue's timely and personal nature, the fact that he's dead, and that the ship's final destination is the afterlife. The new 
thematically similar to Everything Changes at Midnight and It's Time to Go Now, although greatly superior in execution, Reunion on the Queen Caroline is the undeniable blue ribbon of the series' romanticized crossing over episodes. With this one in particular standing as Sorrels' all-time favorite in-between, not written by himself. An honor that goes to longtime series contributor and revered colleague Wilford March, known for delivering glamorized, if not fetishized, stories typically rooted in death and fear of the unknown. March penned 17 episodes, with 16 of them coming from his earlier works. Based on his short story, Heading, Horizon, and The Passengers of the Queen Caroline, which not only goes on to portray scenes of new passengers recognizing Martin, but also has the Queen Caroline sink and plummet to the depths of the other place, March wrote fiercely to pull in the story's scope, while focusing more on its heart and the universally conveyed subject matter of mortality and the afterlife. Sorrels loved the in-between adaptation, and to show his appreciation, treated March to the steak tartare at Melanie's, in addition to a bottle of 35-year triple oak figgins at Pfeiffer's, where they were photographed smoking cigars and sitting in the same highback. In between standby, Skip Davidson plays Martin for his fourth and final appearance in the series. The English actor, known for his earlier suave feature characters before making the rounds of 1950s television anthology series, told Cottage Decor magazine that he modeled Martin after himself and his own concerns with death, which Davidson elaborated on in his deathbed memoir, Bowties and Gimlets. Suffer Fools Gladly Not, Season 6, Episode 23. First aired March 14, 1963. Two astronauts, Erickson and Commander O'Neill, crash land on an alien planet 12 million miles from Earth. Their mission? Follow a signal to locate and rescue a fellow astronaut whose remote vitals read alive and well despite being out of communication for two years. Navigator Mitchell also crash-landed on the distant planet during a scouting mission searching for the mineral salt after Earth's inhabitants depleted the planet's rock salt deposits. Without the resources to repair their ship, Erickson and O'Neill forged through the planet's vast interior and make their way across an arid desert landscape contending with fluctuating seasons and ever-changing temperance with each mile they make. Barely managing the trek themselves, the two intrepid astronauts push on, conserving their transponder's power. Before their instruments fail, the astronauts track the signal to an oasis sitting in a flat, and at its center, a sprawling, luxurious, ancient-meets-futuristic resort spa with steaming salt baths and crater-shaped pools. It's all very well-to-do, natural yet chic. The only thing is, there's not a soul in sight. Everything up and running and further ready, but no clientele, no staff. It isn't long after Erickson and O'Neill find Mitchell, reposed on a sort of salt-block throne, claiming he's the ruler of an invisible race. Dressed in bizarre regalia, Mitchell shows O'Neill the salt flats and speaks of the planet's seasonal acceleration, resulting in quicker and more extensive yields. All the salt we could ever want, with plenty to share, Mitchell famously pleads. 
share, Commander O'Neill asks before an entire community of people appear out of thin air. The Martians, who have a human appearance, speak of their peaceful existence and invite Erickson and O'Neill to stay with them. They add that they're not interested in mining their deposits in any kind of cooperation with the people of Earth, as their reputation is that of a destructive nature, known for extracting planets across the universe to extinction. They also inform the astronauts that if they wish to leave instead, they will happily repair their ship. Torn between personal glory and duty, Erickson and O'Neill squabble with Mitchell, who refuses to leave the planet. There's a scuffle which leads to Mitchell killing Erickson with a rock. O'Neill restrains Mitchell but grows inexplicably tired and passes out from an unexplainable force. When he wakes, he finds Mitchell and himself outside the resort, cast out by the Martians and their ship unrepaired. Without our ship rebuilt, we'll die out here, O'Neill begs. The Martians explain to the astronauts that the human race only knows conflict and will never be able to coexist with another race, let alone themselves. A grim and marginally hard-hearted depiction of humanity and its effects on not just its fellow man, but Earth and potentially the universe as a whole, Suffer Fools Gladly Not is a deliberate response to a planet's pledge to pursue an active presence in space. A race, Sorrels felt, was, and would always be, industrial at its core, be it veiled by national pride. Directed by Ron Helper in his eighth of nine episodes, the second most of any other in-between director, Maury Talbot had the most with 13, notably refusing a 14th as he welcomed superstition, the episode was filmed inside the Mojave Desert's Menlo Basin in November of 1962 during a small production window the week of the Thanksgiving holiday. The short shooting turnaround created a catering fiasco when the only available caterer, splitting their time between the production prep and cooking the personal family feast for a network executive, tried killing two birds with one stone by unwisely serving the production heavy, starch, and tryptophan-soaked options. Before the company's first of four moves that day, everyone on the crew had, at one time or another, fallen asleep. The script girl and helper in their chairs, bonking heads at one point, the grips face down in the sand, some clinging to C-stands on their way down. Operator Willis Edmondson took a head-first swan dive from the crane and credited his safety to a second helping of stuffing. And to add insult to injury, the entire electrical department considered the ambrosia Great Abbotsboro. The snoring caused from all the dry air was unworkable, sound engineer Sam Davis told Moving Pictures Digest writer Red Rutherford. None of the audio was usable. We dubbed the entire episode. Editor Bert Tannen, who cut over 50 episodes of the series, resorted to not only more off-camera deliveries than he would have liked, but sand-filled sprockets in the film he had to punch out with a little pin. An arthritis-inducing effort that nearly ended his career. Ultimately, the dialogue worked. A happy accident that 
adds to the astronauts' displacement in an alien world, making Suffer Fools Gladly Not a production triumph and a narrative treasure in the series' final season. It's the better brittle, it's the butter brittle. Toot, 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 be happy, go lucky for Christmas gifts this year. Six gems on a strand of 217. Brilliant and glinting with storytelling gold. A Greek chorus of stars radiating out into a universe of presumed emptiness. In a world of black and white, there is a region of gray. Case in point, and the in-between. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at tecasualfriday.com or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com. And now, a word from Mr. Sorrels. I want to tell you about a great new addition to your candy dish. Brewster's Candies. And they come in all sorts of flavors. Burgundy cherry, carnation, butterscotch, plantation peach, licorice, and green. Each delightfully cast in the likeness of their namesake. Now with more throat flavor and less cough syrup coat. No substitutions. Only the best and sweetest. Brewster's Candies. No more throat coat.